My name is Mike, 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 Dark, 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 Dark. And I am Richard Wag, Wag, Wagner. We're back. All right, here we go. Another edition of Radio Waves, a very special edition of Radio Waves, I might add. And my name is Mike Stark. With Richard Wagoner. And on this show, Richard and I spend a lot of time beating up and ranting about corporate radio. But this time we are joined by a couple of corporate radio execs who actually love the medium. What a concept, right? It is an absolute honor to be able to speak today with MS Communications CEO and founder Jeff Smolgan and Emma's president of programming Rick Cummings. Jeff has a new book out called Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, which details all that came beyond radio for him. And throughout the book, Rick plays an important role in the journey at Emma's that has turned into a lifelong working relationship and friendship from what I read based on their mutual love. For radio. Thank you both for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. This is fun. Looking forward to it with you and Richard. Likewise. Jeff, I just loved your book. It's so fun to read because you just feel like you're getting an insight into the entire, not only the industry, but I think the idea that it's for entrepreneurs is, is something I almost think everyone should read it. I'm going to have my son read it. Thank you. Well, it's been the response has been very, very gratifying. And uh, it's been a labor of love and a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun with the project. So how did you guys meet? And and did you didn't you actually work together on the air at one point? <laughs> Don't laugh at that. That's impressive. You laugh at that experience. Um, yeah, sadly, we did. <laughs> the, um, the first radio station I ever ran, we hired Rick. Um I think we hired Rick during my zombie state, my, my first 90 days. And he was a production person who was coming off a stellar career at WFMS, where I think <laughs> he played you off. Um, and we, we worked together. He, he then ended up doing the talk show, replacing our midday guy, David Letterman. Rick did that. And then Rick was program director. And then he went off to, um, um, uh, yeah, my gosh, uh, WTIC in Hartford. But before that, I think probably the highlight of both of our careers is we did a Saturday sports talk show. And it was um, it was an early forerunner um, of um, a bad sports talk. Probably. I think. <laughs> Are there air checks available of that anywhere? God, no, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I would pray not. Um, I would say I could probably sell all of Emma's to black to, to blackmail to not have those released. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's Richard touched on it, but let's start with the book. Tell us about the book. It's obviously more than just about broadcasting. It's about all of the things you've been involved with, yeah. including uh, uh, owning a baseball team, working for uh, the government and all sorts of other things. Tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the book, the genesis of the book was I have an 18 now 19 year old daughter who is a freshman at Georgetown um, and I would drive her to school every day from like kindergarten until she unceremoniously fired me when she got her driver's license. <laughs> um, and we just talk about life and, and the lessons I've learned and stories. And 
And one day she said, Dad, you got to write this down. Nobody would ever believe these stories. And so when COVID came, I just started writing. And the next thing I knew during some downtime, I had like 300 pages. And I sent it off to a couple of friends. And they said, you know, you got a book here. So one thing led to another. I got, got a wonderful editor who was just fabulous and tightened things down and said, amplify this, cut this. And then we got an agent. We got a publisher. And the next thing you knew, we had a book. So it's all been fun. That's great. That's great. Positive things to come out of the COVID uh, shutdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably never would have done it. Um, glad I did it. People said, boy, you told a lot of stories and a lot of them are embarrassing stories. But, you know, at this point in my life, you just tell, you know, what happened. And I'm comfortable with what's on the pages of the book. Now, since we are a radio podcast that centers on L.A. radio, we'd like to focus on one of the big success stories at Emmis here in L.A., and that's Power 106, which was purchased by Emmis in 1984, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Tell us the story of how that station came into the Emmis portfolio and how you guys grew it. Rick, you want to tell that one? Well, I I can uh, I can take a shot at it with uh, hopefully a little bit of uh, correction from you because my memory is not as good seemingly as yours is Jeff having read your book, but uh, yeah we we Jeff acquired the station I believe it was for twelve million dollars in uh, nineteen eighty four and we had this sort of cherished notion of doing a different kind of adult contemporary format what would eventually become hot AC and very successful, but we were way ahead of our way ahead of our time and it didn't work out so well. We had Robert W. Morgan as a morning guy. And uh, we did that for a couple of years with a very spotty uh, success. And I remember it must've been the fall of 85 heading into the, Right. Uh, beginning of 1986, we said, well, when the fall book comes out, if we don't hit a certain level, it was a modest level. Uh, we're going to we're going to try something else. And we had been talking to some people about some kind of contemporary format that sort of took advantage of the changing uh, melting pot in Los Angeles. And so sure enough, the book came out. And uh, it wasn't good. <laughs> and uh, on January 11th, 1986, we put on uh, Power 106 on a Friday night. And I think we, we within just a few days, we were hearing the radio station coming out of cars on Sunset Boulevard. You never heard Magic 106. We were hearing it everywhere. And it it felt like uh, what it turned out to be, which was uh, an immediate success. What sort of research did you put into uh, developing that format? Because obviously you had to look at the demo and all of that and and figure it out. Well, think- research, research wasn't nearly as sophisticated then as it is now, but uh, we had done a little bit of research and we had talked to a consultant named Don Kelly. And the whole premise was, is there a coalition of uh, of Hispanics, primary Hispanics, African Americans, and Asians, uh, that we could we could put some music on the on the air that would appeal to that coalition, and it turned out there was it was a, a rhythmic based format. It would later become a rap format, but in the initial years was 
was a sort of a dance rhythmic radio station. It was a combination of urban radio and danceable top 40. Uh, and, and, and I remember the record labels and the trades, they didn't know what to do with us. We weren't an urban station. We weren't a top 40 station. We didn't fit into any particular category. And they would come to us and say, we don't know how to categorize you guys. We don't even know which representatives to send over to try and get you to play records. We And our response was, that's not our problem. That's your problem. We don't care. And, uh, and, and I think that was one of the reasons it was so wildly successful. It just didn't fit into any of the traditional silos. Well, I had teenage daughters at the time. And I got to tell you, they were locked onto that station. I listened to it whether I wanted to or not at the time. Because <laughs> yeah. That was true of Rick, too. That was true of Rick, yeah. too, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they, they just loved the station. Well, and everything we did, from the music to how it was produced, uh, I'll give Jeff some credit here. Uh, I, I can remember when it was an AC station, people would say, you know, the problem is your signal's on Flint Peak, and that's just not a good signal like the Mount Wilson signals. And you're never going to be successful with an AC station because your signal sucks. And then we put this thing on the air, and, and the ID was 76,000 watts of music power, KPWR Los Angeles. And those same people six months later were saying, well, no wonder this is successful. You got one of the biggest signals in Southern California. It's the same signal. <laughs> By the way, that, that catchphrase was genius, I thought. Absolutely, yeah, was, genius. Was, well, yeah, we, we learned early on in this first station, you know, deal with your strengths, reposition your weaknesses. And, you know, so we did that. It was like, okay, the weakness is a single strength. But wait a minute, because we're on Flint Peak, we got 70, I think it was actually 72,000 watts. But who's, <laughs> who's counting? But, and we just drove that home. And, you know, it was like the old, the old bit, you know, the, the, you know, you, you play too many commercials and you run an ad that says now playing less commercials than ever for six months. And you play more commercials than everybody goes, well, they're playing less commercials. This is great. You know? And so the 72,000 watts of music power. Yeah. Pretty soon people said, Oh my God, that signal's so strong. Yeah. For a fast moving tempo that matched the music. And I, yeah. And, yeah. Know, the two your top of the hour ID was just quick and it was yeah. still yeah everything we did we would we would say well kiss plays jingles let's not play jingles uh we had a, a a piece of equipment it was just when digital processing was first beginning and somebody went out and got a digital processor and so we started doing digital processing because no one else was doing it it was whatever we could think of that was different we tried it now, I understand from reading uh, bits of the book that, uh, Jeff, you had to pay out some bonuses because the station did so much better than you even expected, right? Well, we, well actually, the, the bet was with, with Don Kelly, uh, who, who, by the way, was a wonderful guy, but was really the, the, the guy who was totally instrumental in that station for 30 years is Rick Cummings. But I said, Don, Don said, I think you can get a four or five share here. And I said, Don, you get a five share and I'll build a statue for you uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and when the, when the, and the thing went all the way to a six in its first book and I, and Don graciously said, just pay me the cash. You said, and <laughs> statues, uh, we saved money on a statue, but, uh, 
I mean, it was, yeah, it, it was one of those few times in your life when everything goes right. And we've all had them. And when they go right, you know, you just then just worry about not letting the hubris settle in because uh, it but it was a wonderful, a fun, fun experience. One of the things that you uh, you mentioned in the book, and I actually remember it at the time and talking to the people because uh, I was an intern there, which was yep. so much fun being there. You kind of made me feel part of the family, Rick, especially. But um you didn't do traditional research. You actually went into nightclubs. You went into bars. You went into, I think you even went to colleges, things like that, and found out what people were listening to ahead of the game. What isn't on the radio yet? And I started thinking about that and I started thinking, well, wait a minute, that's kind of what I've been saying for the last 10 years that bait radio should do to re- reinvent itself. So apparently I stole my idea from you. Um, <laughs> tell us a little about, about that. How did you... I mean, that's totally different than most research would have been. You, you, Richard, you may remember them. We had uh, early on, really from the very beginning, we had a couple of mixed DJs named Boris and Chris. Yeah. And we would have Boris and Chris do remixes of regular uh, rotation records. And they were also out in the clubs. And we would sit down with Boris and Chris and the other mixers and say, you know, what gets people up on the dance floor gets them excited and we would take one or two of those records and play them like they were already hits we would play them back then 100 times a week which was unheard of we had a a stress rotation for new records which no one was doing that but we just said you know we're going to make a bet here that these are these are going to be hit records and we're going to play them like they already are just play them all the time and so, you know, you get songs like Magazine 60's Don Quixote, which nobody played that record except us. And we played the hell out of it um, because every time you put it on in, uh, at Florentine Gardens, you know, 1,500 uh, Latinos would get up and go crazy. And so we would do things like that. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that made the station kind of unique. Absolutely. It's very forward thinking because so many of the stations, especially now, they sit back and you're researching songs that people already know rather than what they don't know. And and right. let's let's talk about mornings for a second. Now, obviously, Robert W. Morgan didn't make the cut after a certain amount of time. Right. Robert was uh, he was great for an AC station, but uh I still remember the rumor was that we were going to do something new. Jeff, you may remember this, but I think you were flying out to Los Angeles. Yeah. And Robert was on the air. It was one of his last mornings on the air. And he said, uh, the boss is coming out from Indianapolis. I think he's stopping in Detroit for the Curtis Blow records. <laughs> so <laughs> the rumor was the rumor was beginning to circulate that something was going to change. I thought, but, I thought his line was they're going from a guy who does a lot of blow to a guy who's playing a lot of Curtis Blow. <laughs> yeah, and I loved Robert W. I, I listen when I went to school at SC. I listened to Robert W. Oh. I mean, I was the biggest KHJ fan of all time. So hiring Robert W. and it was the twilight of his career, and things weren't as good. But. Right. Uh, uh, no, you're I, preaching to the choir there. We we yeah. both love the whole boss radio format. Yeah, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But then yeah. you brought in Jay Thomas. Was he the next one? Yeah. Yep, he was. 
And I got to tell you, uh, and I've said this before on our podcast about Jay, I always felt that Jay was so good. I mean, people know him as an actor and they know him as other things, but he was so good. It didn't matter what format he worked in. He he could have worked. You could. It didn't matter what the records were that you were playing. He was just so good at doing what he what he does. The, the music was secondary. That's right. I think he had a very successful run there at Power until he didn't. But but if you look back at all the morning shows we built through the years, literally all of them didn't sound like radio morning shows. They were different. And and we encouraged that. Uh, we just felt like uh, we weren't necessarily going to be great at doing typical radio morning shows, but but we could do something uh, something different that stood out on the dial. And Jay was a classic example of that. Um, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't lead with the call letters. He he wouldn't do a lot of the things that disc jockeys are supposed to do. Right. And we didn't care. We were fine with that. How did, what, what made you choose him? I forget who brought him to our attention, but uh, but he came out and we met on a weekend in Hollywood, I think at the Mondrian Hotel. And and he proceeded to entertain everybody at the table for three hours yeah. uh, during lunchtime. And uh, he got up to, to excuse himself to go to the bathroom, we thought, and we said, this guy's this guy's great. He's going to be so different. Let's hire him. Well, little did we know he was actually in the gift shop charging a bunch of shit to our to our expense account to, to bring back to the table. But that kind of that kind of sealed the deal for us. Oh my god! He yeah. He, I mean, I, I don't think I want to tell the story of when he left. But one of my one of my favorites. I guess we could tell it. Joe uh, Jay has passed away about. Yeah, uh, he was taping an hour and a half of the morning show, and nobody knew about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had another jock at another station that was doing that as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Didn't yeah. Rick Rick Dees do that at at uh, Moving? Uh, right. No, he did it at Kiss. Oh, uh, he was he was showing up when he was at Moving, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, he definitely was doing that. At, and and I remember Kevin and Bean. Uh, Bean used to work for us, and they made their mark basically making fun of Rick Dees. <laughs> and they would they would park the van in front of his house every morning, and then and, and throw it to the van driver, and he'd say, "Yeah, it's seven forty five. Rick hasn't come out of his house yet here in Toluca Lake." <laughs> <laughs> then you then you brought in Big Boy. Was he the next one, or did no? You had we the... brought in we brought in the Baker Boys. The right, Baker right. Boys had right. had a. Had a had a really good run for a few years, and then we brought in Big Boy, and uh, and and again they all kind of followed that same model of being very uh, non traditional. And uh, as we got further into the hip hop world, we got more into the belief that you you hire people who have something to say and who are of the culture. And we we figured we can teach them how to say the call letters and uh, how to do the business elements, but we can't teach them uh, the culture, and uh, we can't teach them uh, how to speak to that culture. Those are things that come naturally to them, and that's kind of the model that we we used pretty successfully. Now, Richard and I talk a lot about how 
radio stations today do zero marketing or close to zero marketing. Uh, at least in LA, they don't. Um, you guys did a lot of marketing. And uh, did that help with the success of the station? I mean, I remember book, billboards and all sorts of stuff. I, I think what breaks my heart is the industry stopped when the industry got too much debt and you had all these companies with leverage and how do I cut my cost? Mm. Marketing got cut out. And, you know, I think we lost our relationship with the American public because, you know, you got to reintroduce yourself every day. And we didn't. And our, that probably our, our greatest fun was doing all the marketing. Rick and I wrote the first spot, the company, probably the best spot we ever wrote 40 years ago, uh, introducing WNS to Indianapolis. And we had, and it was so much fun creating marketing plans and, and, you know, whether it was Indianapolis or St. Louis or Minneapolis or L.A. or New York. Um, but you don't see it anymore. The industry is just you don't see people. I mean, I have a friend who should remain nameless who worked for us in a market, ran stations for us for 35 years. Um, and now he's running a couple clusters for one of the giants. And he's got like three or four stations in a market in the, each market. And, and, and he's got less than 10 people in the market. So this is not this is not an industry that connect with people can't relate to people for let alone marketing to people, um, you know, and it breaks my heart. But that's yeah. that's where this industry is. It breaks our heart, too. I have uh, I think this question is actually for Rick. I've always been curious what made the decision to move into hip hop outside of the rhythmic dance music. It died. <laughs> we had uh, we had four or five great years, and then suddenly we were tenth in the market, and Kiss was killing us. And we went in the field, and we did a little research, and I still remember sitting in uh, behind the mirror and watching some focus groups of young Latinas talking about music somewhere in Hollywood or East LA or someplace, and. They all are talking about how they hate the cover girls and expose and that's that's old news. And they're, they're into this thing called hip hop. And uh, uh, we went to school pretty quickly to learn what hip hop was. And um, we started evolving in that direction and immediately gained some of our ratings back. And so we made the evolution much, much quicker I think it took us about a year, year and a half, and pretty soon it was all hip hop. So, in a sense, you reinvented radio twice. Yeah, and he and and I, I don't want to jump in, um, and I and as you know, I don't say nice things about him all the time. But um, <laughs> but, but he is the person in this country who saw this, and he changed it, and he was out on a limb. Fortunately, he had brain dead senior management. We didn't know what the hell he was doing. So when he said he would do this, <laughs> no, I mean seriously, it was controversial. So you can't play rap, you can't play hip hop. And Rick said, I'm telling you, this is the future. And he saw it. It was controversial at the time. Uh, and that, that was really the transformation of hip hop to mainstream. It may have, it may have started 50 years ago, but it, it really went mainstream with that with those two radio stations in New York and L.A. I don't know if you remember, but watching the Super Bowl halftime show two years ago, and uh, I remember talking to friends in New York, and we were like, my God, it's... That's everything that Power 106 and Hot 97 became famous for. It was right there in that halftime show. 
Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. Now, yeah. Um, let's talk now about uh, how you made history in sports radio. I find this interesting. You guys had really great success in music radio, yet both of you came to radio because of your love for sports, right? Well, I think we're both well, sports fans. Jeff did. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I think we're both sports. I mean, you... I didn't do play-by-play for Butler University. You did. So, you know, I mean, come on, let's <laughs> let the record straight. Anyway, um, you ended up starting the uh, the first sports radio format, which was yeah. WFAN. Right. Can you talk about the uh, origins and the growth of that station? I can. Uh, the bitterness is still not left, has still not left me yet. Uh, I <laughs> wanted to do that, that format when I was when I was at college at USC. And when we had our first AM station was WHN, we had the Mets. Uh, and I brought it up to um, the head of our programming, who should remain nameless. I don't remember him, uh, but I think he's on this call. And he, he said, what a stupid idea. And we had a manager's meeting. And Emma's a very collaborative group. We vote. And it got voted down. Um, uh, and, uh, and I'll never forget Steve Crane, who was one of my longest friends who was now retired, but was with us, said, what do you want to do? When we walked out of the meeting, I said, you can't lead where others won't follow. Um, we, we're not going to do this. And the next day, Mr. Cummings and Doyle Rose walked into my office and said, look, we're doing really well everywhere, uh, and we owe you one. So even though we think this is an epically stupid idea, um, we'll do sports radio as long as we don't have to be involved with the dumb idea. And uh, and it so for a while it was am I am I am I lying about anything there? Um, no, so that's pretty accurate. Yeah, and so it was and it was called Smullyan's Folly for a while. Uh, Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmas. Uh, at five o'clock we'd be at a meeting and say, well, it's five o'clock. We lost another twelve thousand dollars at Fan today. Uh, and, I mean, it was a disaster. I'll, I'll tell you one story I I've told in the book I think and. Mike Lynn was was Don Imus's agent, and he was also Robert W.'s agent. And we met with Mike, and we were deciding we had bought the NBC stations a year later, and and we're we're meeting and deciding what to do with Don. And I said, you know, let me see if I get this right. We have a radio station that's losing records amounts of money, uh, record amounts of money. We've got a baseball team in the 1988 Mets who probably have more drug problems than any team in the history of sports. <laughs> And we got a morning guy who's been in and out of rehab for the last four years. What could possibly go wrong putting all this together? But we did it and it worked and uh, the rest is history. Yeah. You have said in interviews and stuff that you think that sports uh, radio is still viable, a viable format, correct? Yeah. 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 Uh, can you talk about that and maybe give us some insight as to why it hasn't been super successful, say, here in L.A.? Well, that's a two-part question. Number one, I, 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 you know, Karl Marx used to say, this would be the last political part of the discussion, but Karl Marx used to say, you know, religion's the opiate of the masses. Well, today, sports is the opiate of the masses. Everybody cares. As I always say, as life gets more complicated, you want to escape and, you know, watch your team and lose yourself in a ball game. So it's something people really care about. And so I, I think it is always, always um, going to matter to people as long as you can you know, talk about things that you know they care about. We used to joke in, in sports, it's the same thing as top 40, play the hits. 
You know, nobody wants to talk about roller derby or, you know, who's running at Santa Anita. They want to talk about the Rams or the Trojans or the Dodgers. So you play the hits. But the problem is L.A., you know, L.A. is just different. Uh, And I feel like I know it very well. Uh, It's a more transient town. People have more things to do. You know, I've said when you look at the affinity for sports, you go across the country and when you get further West, the affinity declines. And I, I've lived this. I spent three and a half years working on the PAC 12 issues for USC. And there's a difference. If you're in in Tuscaloosa, Alabama or Columbus, Ohio, as opposed to Los Angeles, even when SC's great, you know, there's not anybody in the state of Alabama or the state of Ohio that's not totally engaged in Ohio state and Alabama. But in Southern California, even if you've got 80,000 USC fans in the stadium, everybody else is at the beach or they're, you know, they're gotcha. doing something else. And so the, it, it's an affinity issue. And it's why um, it's tougher. It's tougher in, in the West. It doesn't mean the Lakers, you know, don't have a lot of fans and SC does. But but it is it's not the same affinity. And it's it, 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 it by the way, it's true. In the, it's true in Seattle. It's true in Portland. And it's true in San Francisco and San Diego. Uh, it's it's more of a West Coast transient thing. Would you have tried sports radio in Los Angeles, or would you have already known that, thinking that it wouldn't be enough of well, a... Well, obviously, if I had understood all that, I wouldn't have bought a baseball team in Seattle. <laughs> That's another chapter. <laughs> um, that was an uh, interesting chapter, by the way. I got a lot of insight into that, and I realized, boy, you really took the uh, the brunt of the criticism. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I have, a, I have a favorite. Well, they, you know, the book... I have a fa- I've had a favorite saying forever. The line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. I've been on both sides. So one chapter is idiot to genius, WFAN, when it worked. And the other was genius to idiot when I was the, the absolute boy wonder in Seattle. I mean, I, I I signed autographs, you know, 30 minutes after the ballpark every night. And then and then I, you know, went from genius to idiot. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you learn. Uh it is we we would specifically like New York because of the affinity for sports. There's no question. You always know uh, there's much more affinity for sports in New York than there is uh, in L.A. or San Francisco. Even when the team sucks. Yeah, even when the team sucks. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we want to get your both of your prognosis on on the future of radio. Uh, and we'll start with the future of music radio. What what do you what do you see? Is there a future in music radio at all? RC, you want to start with that one? Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't think there is much of a future musically for radio because uh, people can get can get those songs any place these days, and they can get them without sitting through commercials if they want. And so I'm actually back involved a little bit at Power 106. Uh, Our friends at Morello called and said, hey, could you help us out give us some advice? And we've put on a new morning show called Brown Bag. Uh, It's the first time in 40 years I ever said to a new brand new morning show, I don't care if you don't play any records, just talk. Um, Because I think that's the future of of that station when you can get drake at at a competitor at two competitors or three competitors not to mention spotify and many other uh streaming platforms on demand 
you're not going to be successful playing Drake records. You've got to you've got to really rely on what you do between the records. And and so we are making a big bet on this this uh, young morning show team that they are going to set set the station apart and and really draw a big audience. But but I think I think increasingly you'll see music stations needing to do what Woody does at at Alt um and what many other great morning shows are doing on music stations mm-hmm. and you'll see those music stations try to spread that effort to other day parts that's what yeah, i think seeing it in the afternoon a little bit too yeah i think yeah i think the yeah i think listen as long as you can create content that matters to people uh and i think lo- largely that's personalities community involvement um, it is very difficult, and I think we did this to ourselves. We we saw it with Next Radio. You you run a radio station that's running 16, 18, 20 units an hour, 24 units an hour, and, and you're just putting up a sign that says, please don't listen. And and we've got competitors, you know, you listen to some competitors and before they before they run paid spots, they run, you know, four or five minutes of promos for other ventures that they have. And it's just, you know, and, and and their theory is, look, this inventory, we don't care. We got plenty of inventory. Well, the problem is that creates in the mind of the consumer that there's just, as Rick said, there's better, easier places to go to get the same stuff. Yeah. And and also the, the personalities that actually are on the air are yeah. reading cards and they're reading, they're not being personalities. And, yeah. Right. and yeah. Richard and I always talk about, you know, exactly what Rick had just said a minute ago about it's what comes between the records. That's the most important. Yeah. And it always was, it was always. with boss radio. It was yeah. with any of the great radio stations. And that yeah. also might be a reason that, you know, where sports radio could have some viability. And you sort of did that by putting Don Imus on in the mornings yeah. because we, he wasn't yeah. just, he wasn't just about sports. He was about everything. We actually looked at Don when we first started the station, because in those days it was like, does anybody want to hear about sports at six o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and so we said, well, you know, Imus is a perfect way to test it because he loves sports, but he also loves everything else. Yeah. But he was under contract at NBC and he had his problems then. Um, but he was the perfect transition because he could talk about sport. Still, my favorite sign-off in all of my years was the IMAS sign-off at 10 in the morning when he said, this concludes the entertainment portion of today's programming. For the next 20 hours, your mindless drivel for morons who are going to talk about sports and know nothing about anything. So if you want to be entertained, tune back in tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., and it's one of the great bits of all time. That is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Have you gotten, there's two questions I want to ask, and one's related to something earlier, but you were kind of brutally honest in your talking about Next Radio. And yeah, yeah. Have you gotten yeah. any uh, pushback from, from any of the people you mentioned? Well, my goal in the book, my goal in the book was to sell um, a lot of copies or have Bob Pittman buy 100,000 copies and burn them. Um, <laughs> I don't know what he's done. No, I mean, I could, you know, because people said, I've had some fascinating reactions. It's gotten some publicity. Um, I can't tell you how many people called and said, well, you said what we've all known for years. You're the first person to say it out loud. You confirmed uh, everything that I had heard. 
Yeah, and everybody knew it. There was no secrets. There was nobody in the industry who didn't say that. Some of the stories, the 46 Studebaker story, I couldn't tell Next Radio without it. My book is not designed to be snarky, but the Next Radio story was an important story, and you couldn't tell it without knowing that Pittman was lurking in the background trying to sabotage it all day long. Yeah. Um, so, but that's, but that, it's funny. I've had people thank me for saying what we all, what they all knew. And I said, it kind of amazes me that after a decade, I'm the first person to actually say it publicly. I mean, you know, although they've been some analysts, I guess. I'm Without Clear Channel and iHeart and Pittman, yeah. Yeah. Emmis, do you think they would, do you think the industry itself would be a lot healthier so that Emmis wouldn't have had to sell some of their stations to, uh, you know, to basically pay off a lot of their debt? Well, I can't blame them for my debt, um, you know, I, but and, and you and paid those off. They didn't. Huh? Yeah, I paid all mine off. It's all been paid off. Uh, but but I mean, I think, you know, they, and it certainly is not a Bob Pittman problem. By the way, when Bob Pittman got to iHeart or Clear Channel, the company had over 20 billion dollars of debt. So he just basically left it the same. And when it went bankrupt, it still had 20 <laughs> billion dollars of debt. Uh, he didn't pay anything off. But. But I mean, the industry took on too much debt. The consol I mean, I, the book talks about all of it. I don't want to bore you with it now. But I mean, the industry took on too much debt. And then with too much debt, they added inventory and they cut people. And it was just a vicious cycle. And the problem is in an industry that's not growing. Now, would the industry have grown if we were running six units an hour? Probably not. But but I think the declines would have been much less precipitous. Yeah. And and uh, this kind of leads into one of the final questions that we have for you. Uh, Jeff, you lobbied for the Telecommunications Act in 1996. Yeah. Yes. And yes. in the book, you admit that the legislation was a mistake. Uh, what was your thinking at the time that you thought it might be a, have a positive effect? And uh, what has happened instead? And I have mixed emotions. I, I'm ever, I think in the book, I talk about Tom Maluski, who was head of greater media. And at the time, Tom said, you'll be sorry. And there were a couple of other people. And there was so much fervor about, look, we have to be able to compete, um, you know, with all these other industries. And, and we're limited to 12 stations. Uh, the, the funny part about it was we all thought, gee, if you could own 4 a.m. and 4 f.m. stations in a market and you could own, you know, 12 markets, you own 96 stations, that'd be the greatest thing in the world. Well, at the last minute, it was unbeknownst to us. I think Lowry and Eddie Fritz and Trent Lott made it unlimited. We we all said, who in the world could run a thousand radio stations? It's not possible. Twenty five years later, I'm telling you, that was right. Nobody's been able to run that many stations. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think we all we all thought, you know, it's going to and it did. It opened up capital. Wall Street fell in love with us. But it's like anything else. It leads to excess. And there was so much capital and people were bidding up prices. You know, we got into TV. There's a point in the book where we said, this is crazy. You know, a radio station the last week was 10 times cash flow. Today is 23 times cash flow. And it's based on, you know, an industry that for years grew at four to five to six percent a year, produced very nice, steady cash flow growth. But that wasn't you couldn't sustain a 23 times purchase with that kind of growth. Um, so it just built upon itself. And then you had all the, all the machinations from wall street. Would it, you know, could it have come differently even if we'd been deregulated? Sure. It could have, it, this is just the way it evolved. That's so what, what do you see as the future of corporate radio? Well, I think, I mean, I still think there's a place for this medium. There always will be. I think it's very hard 
Um, people always say there's too much debt. And I know I had to laugh because iHeart, you know, when they went bankrupt, um, they they dropped their debt from 21 billion to 6 billion. And in one of their press releases, they said, what a great achievement. We've cut $15 billion off of this debt. And I went, well, you went bankrupt for God's sakes. Of course you cut 15 billion. But the problem, but the problem is, and you've seen this, is that you've had, you've had the lenders who say, well, let's still leave it at like five or six times. Um, so I heart, and, and the problem is in a declining business, five or six times can be seven or eight or nine times. And then you got a death spiral. So it's, it's really, really hard. Um, you know, if you had somebody who had zero debt uh, and you could run, uh, you know, one of the things about Next Radio is we thought that if we could run location-based advertising based on data, that we could charge a lot more and people cut their unit loads. Now, I can also tell you that, you know, that was, you know, a, you know, a 55-yard pun into the, you know, into the wind. Um, but but we, we thought that, but we said, you know, the idea was how do we save this business? Yeah. I don't know if I answered that question. You've also moved into podcasts too. So you're obviously seeing a future for entertainment. Yeah. And and that's a good thing. Now uh, we we'd love to have you on you guys on again sometime and talk more and more about digital media and things like that. But I think, I think we want to wrap it up. And, and I, I just want to say that I think what we've learned today is you have a uh, 11 commandment rules for your company. Yeah, and I think we found why Amos is so uh, successful, and because you guys really do live by those commandments. You know, this is who we are, and you know, listen. At our ages, you're talking to two guys over seventy. One of us is significantly over seventy, and uh, you know, we are who we are, and I'm proud of it. We, we, and I, you know, he and I have said a thousand times. Other people may do it other ways. This is who we are. And we're proud of who we are. And 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 uh, obviously, you know, we, Rick and I have been together almost 50 years. And we're, we, we have been, you know, I mean, trust is the most elementary part of any human relationship. And I don't think there's anybody I could trust more than him. And he doesn't trust me at all. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, but I mean, trust is the most important thing and your integrity and and have some fun. And we've done all those things. So uh, I'm proud of it. Very proud of what we did. And your your um, executives and your employees seem to stay with you forever. It's it's really amazing. I mean, we like I said, Rick was employee number two. Uh, we you know we, people have been here a long, long time. I think the thing that's most gratifying is that when people leave and they do something else, and they'll send me a note and say, "It's still the best place I ever worked." Mm. Uh, I learn more there. Uh, I've had so many incredible comments from about the book about you know what I learned at Emmaus. And it, those are the things that really matter. It's been very, very gratifying. Well, I think we'll wrap it up on that note. And, and we can't thank you enough for uh, sharing your experiences and, and making, you know, making us understand that corporate radio doesn't have to be like the other people are doing with their, their entities. So Thanks. we, we appreciate you guys and, and hopefully we can get you back on again. Come today. back anytime. This is fun. We, uh, as you can tell, we enjoy this, so we do it again. Well, we we talk about this show being for radio geeks, so welcome to the family. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. 